Hello, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight, we will be discussing a few different topics, but the main topic of discussion will be the biggest story going on right now, and that is the border crisis in Texas, which is creating a broader constitutional crisis. This is perhaps the most overt constitutional crisis since the American Civil War, and I don't think that's hyperbole. I, I you know, there's a lot of covert ones, you know, bad Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, you know, most of these constitutional crises are brought on by the Supreme Court. But as far as overt ones, this one is contributed to by the Supreme Court. But it's mostly brought in by the fact that Texas has declared an invasion and they're fighting with the federal government in order to thwart that invasion so that is our main topic for tonight uh i know you've been following the story and we do a lot of uh christian news gathering and commentary here on evangelical dark web that's kind of our thing but we also react to the latest happenings in a christian way and what is interesting about this story is big eva is very reticent to speak on this issue I don't well, know if you've noticed They've anything. always been very soft on immigration. They treat, you know, they've always had to treat the refugees, you know, I don't say like they're human, but, you know, you know, they're just, they actually treat them like they're, re they actually think of them as refugees, you know, just people seeking a better life and all that stuff when they're really just opportunists. They're actually thieves because they're stealing your resources. And I, I think the word invader is probably the most apt. Uh, so, no, no, my, I, I like the term bipedal locust and that's kind of my, my coined term. Cause it's basically a locust on two legs and they're just re you know, they're just coming in and harvesting all your crops from you. You know, it's kind of like the, the, the Joel image imagery of the plague of locust. Yeah. It does make you think that, you know, illegal immigration, this many illegal immigrants, and I saw some numbers that suggested the amount that have entered in under the Biden regime would be larger in population than over 40 states. Yeah, it'd be like, what? Yeah, 12th largest state in the union. I think it was closer to like there's six states that have higher populations Yeah, than the amount of illegal immigrants that have been flooded that border under biden and this is just something that would not happen in a competent governmental system and it's it's unthinkable that you would let your border get invaded like this yet here we are now i want to follow up on the evo awards where i said i had some positive things to say about greg abbott at the time if you recall that and you were a little skeptical of greg abbott i still am but greg abbott stepped up to the plate here yeah, I mean, it only took him till his third term in office to yeah, step it, up to the plate. Three terms and you're out, though. Right? So, I mean, the, the sad part is you have supposed, you know, like Ted Cruz as your senator who should have been lobbying for you to do this action the entire time. Then you have Chip Roy as well as your, you know, loudmouth congressman who, again, also should have been pressing you, like pressing you to do working the Texas uh, political apparatus to be like, very uh protectionist on immigration policy so i mean it should not have taken until 
you know, 2024 to finally get some action and movement on this. 2023, if we're really being fair. Because a lot of this stuff has happened in 2023. He declared the invasion quite a while ago, but I think he declared he's the, actually acting on it. Oh, I think he declared the invasion in 2022 after Carrie Lake lost. And, you know, so it's like this, I mean, the you know, the, the, the trains of justice are very slowly rolling and and that's a problem for sure. I think it is a problem that it is slowly rolling, but I would reject some people on our side, I would say, are basically saying that this is all fake uh, and nothing's really happening. And I got to say that that's an incorrect assumption. This is going to become something real, whether it's forced to become a real thing and it was just grandstanding at first, but now it's forced to become realer than it ever wanted to be. I wonder, or, I wonder or how much whether, of this uh, is uh, about Ken Paxton getting freed up to actually do his job that the people of Texas elected him to do because he had the impeachment proceedings. And I think he's actually removed from office during the impeachment proceedings. So now that he's he was essentially acquitted, that means he's able to actually do his job once again. So I think a lot of so I wonder how much of this. But isn't is because, the solicitor general the one that's actually going to be arguing the case? Well, yes, yeah, solicitor general argues the case. Generally, would argue the case for the courts, but the fact that he's able to set policy agenda in in the capacity as attorney general of Texas. So I think is, one of the things that was kind of coming up was that. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is talking about the Constitution, but he isn't back. You know, that's not his actual argument in court, which turned out to not be to be a false narrative to kind of undermine what he's doing. And there's court documents from last year where they're citing the invasion clause. They're citing the Constitution as their basis for the action that they're taking. And that was pretty clear in the court documents but apparently people didn't read the documents before making claims about what Ken Paxson and, and uh, Greg Abbott are or are not it's kind of arguing it's, in court. It's almost amazing that, they, that they're you know nitpicking the difference between what you file in a court document versus your political narrative on this separate occasion, yet they didn't do that when, like, there's countless other Supreme Court cases they haven't done that to, like the affirmative action case where they didn't really... 100%, 110% strike down affirmative action. Like, you know, which is why Harvard is still doing it. They just changed the name. Um, then you have the uh, vaccine mandate case. They didn't actually strike down vaccine mandates as unconstitutional and a violation of medical uh, freedom or privacy or even just, you know, bodily autonomy. They didn't establish bodily autonomy as a, as a right. And they left the medical workers out, out hanging out to dry. So they didn't actually rule on the issues and we treat these as victories. So it's like the one time where we don't distinguish between the political narrative or we try to make a distinction between like a political narrative and the court filings. It's kind of just, I don't know. It, it's like this is the time we try to differentiate between what the courts actually said versus what Abbott's doing. Right. So let's give the update on what exactly the situation is. You know, the, the court said that the Biden administration is free to remove razor wire from the border, specifically at Eagle Pass. Texas has responded to that by putting up more razor wire. 
And there does appear to be some sort of standoff between federal and state agencies. The federal government is not, to my knowledge, actively opposing Texas on the ground rather than in the courtroom and perhaps in rhetoric. But, you know, no confrontation of gun pointing at each other or a Mexican standoff on the Mexican border has not actually ensued yet. And in the meantime, this was developing yesterday, was the governors were coming out and out of the woodwork to stand with the governor of Texas and the actions that he was taking. We had Oklahoma, Florida, Georgia, Virginia, South Dakota, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some. I think it's up to Georgia 25, as well. I think it's 25 states now. And the current status on that is, yeah, you're right. 25 states is a number. Every Republican governor except for Vermont, which you probably forgot had a Republican governor, but he's a Republican up there, but barely, I guess, in name only. And he's the only one that didn't want to sign on to it. Even Chris Sununu didn't. You know, he's endorsing Nikki Haley, who basically peddles the liberal narrative on illegal immigration. But nonetheless, he came out to support his fellow governors, the Republican Governors Association that did it. So that is the status update. We have 25 governors standing up against the uh, federal government under Joe Biden. So that's a pretty incredible sight. This is basically a comp, almost a compact between states going on here. And it is going to lead to a, a showdown with the federal government. And the question is, who's going to play chicken on this issue? So I guess that's the first question uh, to kind of lob up to you. Who do you, what do you think happens from here? Uh, do you think the federal government kind of tucks tail or do you think Texas backs down first? I mean, honestly, if I had, I just, I have to say Texas ducks tail on this. If I, if, you know, past behavior is indicative of future behavior, I would go with the past behavior. I would go with Texas and, you know, Biden regimes let, you know, 10 million people so far. But the other angle to this, if you want to actually play Texas is if the Democrats are tr trying to polish the turd that is Joe Biden and his presidency, then they'll actually let Texas do what they want to do. Let the 2024 election happen and then crack down. So that if they want to like polish the turd, then that means they're going to stop the immigration, let things stabilize a little bit and then clamp down. Now, there's a few angles in which this is being fought. One is in the courtroom and I don't know who's going to win that case because if Amy Coney Barrett's going to side with all the other liberal women on the Supreme Court, and I do mean other liberal women because she is also a liberal woman. Uh, she is an awful, as it's called, affluent white liberal or feminist liberal, or right? Or is that aff awful? Uh, yeah, the idea is like affluent. You got it right. Women, uh, feminist, liberal, whatever. So. That's what she is, and she is, you know, she's been a bad justice, and it's not even debatable. She got Roe v. Wade right, but other than that, she's a D-tier justice on the Supreme Court. If we're doing a, a nice little t tier list, like you got all those YouTube videos on tier lists, you got uh, Samuel 
Samuel uh, Alito and uh, Clarence Thomas at the top. They're probably S tier, if not A tier, depending on which one you like better. And then space bar, space bar, the C tier, you have Kavanaugh and um, Neil Gorsuch. They would probably be C tier justices. And then you no, have D tier. I would not even. I, I want to make sure that we know that Kavanaugh is a better justice than Barrett. No. I also don't like trusting women that have two last names. Uh, something about not taking your husband's name in Toto. I don't know. So not really trustworthy. And then the F tier is Roberts and every Democrat appointed Supreme Court justice, which are all women, by the way, now. It's Kagan, Sotomayor, and uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. They don't have any dues on the Supreme Court other than Roberts. So I think that's pretty interesting. Barrett screwed us on this which is unsurprising. She has a very Catholic and by Catholic, I would probably mean she is very aligned with the Pope on a lot of things. She's pretty against death penalty. As far as I can tell, the Pope is also very pro open borders. So except at the Vatican, they have walls and security there, but he's generally been a pretty pro open borders guy. And that seeps down into her theology, her worldview. Pope also was nowhere to be found on any of the issues regarding 2020, and neither was Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. So you don't put a COVID Nazi on the Supreme Court, and that's what Trump did. That was a bad idea at the time. But because Ginsburg died, you had to put a woman on the Supreme Court instead of the most qualified person available. So... And by Catholic, I mean she agrees with the Pope. Uh, the woke Pope, of course. So those are just my thoughts. So it could go to the courts, and I'm not sure if it would win there because a lot of these justices also voted against Arizona in 2012. We got to remember that there's the show me your papers law in Arizona in 2012. That was struck down by the Supreme Court. Should not have been struck down by the Supreme Court. But Texas passed a similar law about arresting people for being illegal in the country. But, you know, so they're going to they've already gone after that law as well. So there's a lot of ways that this could play out, especially in the courts. But let's say they lose in the courts. Is Greg Abbott going to find the balls to defy the courts again? Uh, he's doing he's defying the courts in posture right now. But is he actually going to do it? I mean, I think this is where the strength in numbers is actually coming in hand. Because I've written about Greg Abbott being more of a follower than a leader. I mean, if DeSantis is leading, then Greg Abbott might be like three weeks behind DeSantis. So I think the uni unified states, like this band of states, and one might call it a confederacy of states, that is you know, aligning themselves over this border security, is actually going to strengthen his resolve, whereas he would otherwise be rather impotent. And I think that's the case. Uh, a lot of these other governors have skin in the game because they have National Guard deployed in Texas. So they are actually helping with, I believe it's called Operation Lone Star. So they have skin in the game. Uh, Texas and Tennessee, I know for a fact, have a National Guardsmen there. And that's Kind of why I was like, hey, Bill Lee, you going to say something? He came out with the governor's statement, as far as I can tell. But it, 
one thing I like about the map of states is that there's continuity. You know, at they, you know, so if a civil war breaks out, there's continuity between all the states that uh, are aligned with the coalition states of America, which might be a nice way to rebrand, right? The coalition states of America, you know, the yeah, nice CSA. <laughs> and then the uh, the union. Are we going to call them the union or is it just the uh, federal the workers, states of America? I was going to say workers union. <laughs> the workers union. Except, you know, workers union, labor unions don't like illegal immigrants. The uh, union of, uh, what, a USSR? Uh, union of, of uh, Soviet social... satellite republics. Uh, yeah, uh, union of states. What, states? Soviet satellite. Yeah, I know, but I'm trying to do it in the United States. Like, like socialist satellite socialist states, states of America, of the of the American Republic. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what is lining up because this, if, I mean, the I don't want to say it's the worst case scenario because I actually kind of view a civil war as preferable to this, you know, presidential election. <laughs> uh, that's how much I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but the idea is that 25 states, and then you have some of those states like uh, North Carolina and, and Kentucky that is like, yeah, if they want to side the federal government in this civil war. Those governors are not going to last very long because uh, they're you know, Democrats in deep red states. But I just think, you know, Hollywood's coming out with a movie about the Civil War, about an American Civil War, which has a very preposterous uh, premise that Texas and California are working together. And it, it just basically regionalizes the conflict. But in reality, this is much closer to more of an English Civil War scenario where you got certain parts of the of the country are, you know, cavaliers and the others are parliamentarians. So you have you know, a much more segmented thing. And then you got the Covenanters in Scotland. You're kind of switching sides. Uh, you're never really sure what side they're on. So it seems more like that kind of civil war. And uh, Angela points out that it's predictive programming. It's like, well, yes, but it's going to give us the, great memes. Talk about the Civil War movie. Yeah. the they're, They actually flip the script, though. They make it because I, I think they're actually having the Trump figure as the villain in the White House taking a third term or whatever. And then the freedom fighters are the rebels. So because they always oh. got to be the ones fighting the oppression. What kind of American are you? And that question very much I, I mean i feel like that question's already relevant because we basically well, have two countries here that well that question what kind of american are you what does it mean to be an american what is america that's literally why donald trump won in 2016 and no one has really been able to capture that not these trump mirror candidates you know like carrie lake like the, what if that's it's just that trump was the vic or i don't want to say victim because that's not the right word but he's the benefactor that's actually the right word of, you know, the pendulum of politics along with a deeply unpopular presidential candidate and the, you know, overwhelming, and this is where the MAGA part comes in. There's an overwhelming sense that the America's in decline. Well, yeah, but I mean, I mean, I wrote this in the identity politics, Trump, the MAGA movement. And he is, captures that specific. Yeah, the MAGA world. movement is like 
Pat Buchanan paleoconservatism plus Ron Paul's foreign policy. And that's how you get MAGA. And again, that works. It captures identity as to what is America. And he actually tapped into that essence that was in decline or that America is in decline and you need to make America great again. again. And he captured the identity of what it means to be an American. And this is, and that's why he won. And that's also probably why the Republican brand sucks. Why Trump copycats don't work because they don't actually do that. They copy Trump. They don't copy what Trump did. And again, it could be inadvertent what Trump did. And that's why Kentucky doesn't have a Republican governor, by the way. Well, they picked the rhino as well. Well, but he was a Trump copy. Yeah, that, that was his campaign message. It didn't really work. And then you got someone like Glenn Youngkin, who's probably personally liberal, but he governs a lot more conservatively because, first of all, he's an opportunist. And I'm not going to hate an opportunist, provided if you want to rank up, you uh, you know, you you put in the work, and we'll reward that type of opportunism here. I'm fine with that. I mean, he's and he's done a lot of that. Compared he's to ran his mouth a lot, too much to probably. But he was also good... one of the first. He was also among the first governors to support. Uh, yeah. Greg Abbott I mean, here. I mean, his problem is he ran his mouth on the tranny stuff. To and he could have actually been a good VP nominee. But I, I think he would have been a good VP nominee. But you know, I I don't. I, I kind of dread that decision. You know, if Trump picks Haley, then that'll make things a lot easier in some sense. Uh, I could easily see it happening. But, you know, Tim Scott's ready to be Mike Pence 2.0, right? So, and he's got engaged. So he's got, uh, she said yes. He's Black Lives Matter in the halls of Congress. And he's uh, pro-white in the sheets, I guess. I don't know. Uh, such a conundrum he is, Tim Scott. So he could be the VP candidate, but whoever the VP candidate is, they should not be seen as a successor to Trump. And that's what kind of concerns me about that is our movement is going to think that this guy, whoever Trump picks as a VP, unless it's Haley, it will be some will be the person that we should run in 2028. And that's just a I, I don't like the sound of that because Trump is not going to pick someone who's strong to be a VP. That's why he picked Pence the first time. So that that's my that's my read on the situation. If you have a strong personality, if you're an alpha male, you're not going to be on Trump's list for VP. Yeah, I mean that's why you know I try to let's float Kevin Stitt out into the ether. Maybe it'll get picked up by MAGA World. Does the does Oklahoma have a good lieutenant governor? I don't know. That's Dusty Devers. How about Burgum? And I think that's actually—I actually like Burgum as a VP pick for DeSantis at the time. Uh, for Trump, I don't think it works against them at all. They're both billionaires, so there's some money, uh, good uh, things that that could solve. I, I think that would actually be a, a good pick. Yeah, it would be a very energy. He's also an above-average Republican governor. He's the guy who was one of the first. Uh, North Dakota, I believe, was one of the first states to ban uh, men and women's sports, by the way. While, you know, South Carolina, Christy Nome, who is floated as a VP, was the person that vetoed that bill before signing the same bill a year later. And I got so much crap for calling her out on it at the time. And then she, you know, 
turned the other uh, she turned code on that issue. So South, South Dakota is a mess in part because of her, but you know we could have so many more victories in South Dakota if it weren't for Christy Nome. No, but we need our strong female conservatives leaders and men need to step aside so women can lead according to the christian post bergam is just like pence in temperament but you know what he's not like pence in physiognomy because the dude is a good looking man no homo but he has an al pacino thing going on so i i think he i think he would be a good vp candidate based on looks based on his uh based on a few other things but and he's he above average Republican governor. I think that's a pretty good qualification. Like yeah, I thought he would he was play well. He would candidates. play well in that area too, because what North Dakota is right next to Minnesota, so maybe he could help. I mean, North Dakota. North Dakota is a very rhinoish state, but again, he is better than a lot of other red state governors, which would actually make him sort of a generic Republican figure. Wouldn't over wouldn't overshadow the person at the top of the ticket i think he's actually a pretty good vice presidential candidate so that's my take on that uh i i don't really have a whole lot of hope for trump's vice presidential picks i think he's gonna go diversity higher or maybe he he does the uh the the wedding with uh nikki haley so that that's the worst case scenario, probably. But Nikki Haley would never be seen as a successor to Trump, and that's mainly my priority is that they're not a successor to Trump in any way, shape, or form, because they're not going to be a strong personality at all. So, Kentucky is Kentucky the swing because Rand Paul is the best overall pick. I don't think Rand Paul would be a good vice presidential uh, pick. I don't think he helps you out on election day. I, and I think he's one of the best senators we have, but I don't think he would help you out, help you win a presidential election. Yeah. I so mean, I don't know what he brings. I like Rand Paul. I think he should probably run again if, you know, for president. I think, yeah, I think a second shot, he would do much better on a second, second go around. He's a much, he's one of the best senators. Again, I don't think we should be taking people out of the Senate. We, we have too few good senators to risk him, Yeah, in my opinion. I mean, he's Rand so Paul. good at his job that he shouldn't get a promotion is basically yeah, what I'm saying. <laughs> but here's what I would have done like earlier on. It's like, why not? Have, why, Trump should have put Ted Cruz on the Supreme Court. Now, obviously, I got some issues with Ted Cruz. Like, well, Ted at Cruz, the time, that's a great idea. It's not a good idea now. It's not a good idea anymore. But it used to be a good idea because until Ted Cruz wanted to run his mouth about Uganda, it seemed like a good idea before that. So, again, the, these are things that we got to do better at if we win in 2024. We, we can't be screwing up Supreme Court nominations because this might be the term that Clarence Thomas says, I, I got to retire before I, you know, die and give a Democrat my seat. Which brings us back to Texas, because Ken Paxton would make a great Supreme Court justice. Maybe. So, back to Texas, and not messing with Texas. 
I do have some evangelical reaction because, like I said in the beginning, they've been very silent on this issue. It is out, you know, it is deafening how silent they've been on this issue. And there isn't a whole lot of like, you know, I'm not seeing Phil Vischer comment on it. I'm not seeing like Karen Swallow Pryor or even Eric Mason or other woke people comment on it. And to G3's credit, we have ragged on them a lot. The ones who've commented have been very based. So I appreciate G3 and Mediva for coming to their senses on this issue, on this political issue, because they're not very good at politics in general. Uh, they're not very good on constitutional issues in general, but they seem to get this issue. And for that, I want to give them some credit. I'm trying to pull up the, uh, the tweet. Yeah, here we go. So allow me to share screen. So we got basically this one guy who's kind of like a lower level, uh, Southern Baptist kind of guy, uh, Bradley Mason. I stand with. I stand with razor wire carving up brown children in rivers because must states rights is quite the Christian take. So that's kind of his point. And I responded with the uh, yes. Actually. I mean, why stop at razor wire? I, 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 again, I mean, if the Santis wants to really help ship some alligators, uh, exactly. the Rio Grande. Yeah, let's get I, some alligators out there. I, I don't know if they're indigenous to that area. I don't know if they'll like the area, but if we need to get something that's more desert oh, yeah. friendly, then maybe we can go to Africa and get a nice uh, crocodile. Maybe a crocodile might work better than an alligator, but we, we can definitely work something out. So those are my thoughts. Uh, yes. And he's one of the only even jellyfish is out there that's really commented on this story the liberals are kind of ignoring it and from what i've heard like this is everywhere on twitter but this story is not everywhere on facebook the borders story in general or yes i mean i don't see any news stuff on facebook but so that that's kind of been my read and Otherwise, Christian media has been pretty silent on this issue, which is interesting. Like, it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, the Alistair Beggs thing, right? Christian Post hasn't actually reported on that story. They did republish Samuel Say's article, which I knew was going to happen, but they didn't publish any news article about that. But they have covered this story. If I, I think they've covered this story. I, it's just interesting what gets covered and what gets not covered, but this is the most overt constitutional crisis that we've had. And, you know, it's, it, it is gearing up to be the possible match that sets off the civil war in the United States. No, as it should. I mean, let's just be honest, but the long overdue idea of just importing a replacement population <laughs> And it's like, oh, we're only now stepping up and saying, hey, we don't want all these people coming over. And yeah, know. so and it, this it, has been every every country in Europe is basically having these same issues. They just don't have the means to resist that. the United Yeah, States has. they don't have the will to resist either. I, I some of these you know countries in Europe, they could resist if they wanted to smaller borders. Uh 
you know, boats and patrolling their ports and stuff. So this is something they could do if they wanted to. The southern border is much bigger because America is big. Uh, and we have unique problems with that. We also have a uniquely unhelpful neighbor in Mexico because they don't have their stuff together. You know, they ever since America beat Mexico in the Mexican-American War, they've just been a failed state. So that's kind of the story of Mexico. And it's hard to be a neighbor with that. So they're not a good neighbor. They're not State Farm. And here we are uh, dealing with them basically being a third world funnel for the United States. It's not something that's sustainable long term. So there's a lot of things that I'd like to do if, you know, if I were running America's foreign policy. Number one, we'd invade Canada and put down the Marxist regime up there. Number two, we'd take forward positions along the Mexican border if necessary to prevent invasion. And, you know, obviously along those lines, you know, there's no reason why we're not we're processing people who cross over into our nation. They should not be processed. They should be repelled. Well, I mean, the problem is they're going to keep coming until we actually make it so that it's more costly. It, it's more costly than it is beneficial. We have to actually make the cost benefit analysis flip because, again, so long as it still benefits them to cross or to. Try, I mean, it should be a lethal force that is yeah. the repellent. Like this is what Julius Caesar did when the, you know, the barbarians wanted to settle in Rome in Roman territory. They wanted to cross the Alps and settle. And he's like, no, we're not doing that. And deployed the legions. That's what America needs to be doing on its southern border. But we don't have competent leadership. This is, you know, something that any other nation would have done in history. But we're like the one. But, you know, this post-World War II consensus is that you can't handle a border crisis in ways that, you know, have bad PR. And that's kind of the world we live in where we're governed by PR and sensibilities and not what's actually practical and beneficial for the people. So this is not a good situation, but that's the way you do it. That's the only way out is lethal deterrent, mass deportations. So those are the solutions. You having some issues or yeah, I might have just dropped. I don't know. All right, so you're back. But yeah, I mean the border should be, you know, blocked tight, should be like the DMZ. And unless you make it more costly to cross, then they'll keep coming, they'll keep sending their worst, and we'll keep, you know, having to deal with the problems on both sides of the border because again, they're a huge strain on the economy. I mean, even the narrative that immigrants help the economy isn't really true. It's a lot of it's a wealth transfer, which is. I mean, if if we're talking about the labor market and supply of labor, where American wages are basically suppressed. Well, wages are depressed. Housing, housing, yes, housing and rent go up because of immigrants adding to supply. Um, Obviously, crime. So yeah, they add up. They add to the demand. They don't add to the supply. 
So th there's only a fixed number of houses. I mean, obviously we build more, but you know, well, we're just have, importing millions of people. Then you have schools and all the public services. So, I mean, the, and again, they're, so they actually are a net drain and ironically, you know, reading age of entitlement, you know, they talk about the Reagan amnesty deal and it's just like, no, they don't actually benefit the economy. They actually, it's basically a wealth transfer from the population to the, to the, to the immigrants. So it's a wealth transfer. So people actually, the Americans actually became poorer because of the immigration. And yeah, I think you see that in terms of the young generation doesn't have a whole lot of economic hope at the moment. I mean, some of it is entitlement, but I think a lot of it is there was a lot more opportunity, you know, gener a generation or two ago. There's a lot more opportunity. And on top of that, hard work was used to be rewarded more in this country than it is right now. Hard work right now is not as rewarded as it used to be. So that is uh, just a tra tragedy. And I think illegal immigration contributes to this problem. So one question I posed on Twitter was, do you think the Texas National Guard is having recruitment issues right now? Right like right now probably not like do you think that they're probably going to have a disproportionately higher number of recruits than say any of the armed force armed you know branches of our military i mean that in that sense they'll be doing pretty pretty good i mean i i don't know if they have like they still have a covid mandate or if that's still in, in effect with the biden administration because that was the thing so, I mean, outside of those factors, I imagine they're, they're more owls doing pretty well. I mean, the uh, Twitter poll was pr pretty uh, lopsided in favor of, yeah, Texas might not be having a recruitment issue right now. And I think this was basically the reason why we have a military recruitment crisis in this country. Yeah, which is going to bode very well if we have to go to war with uh, Russia or China. Uh, because we don't have the numbers to fight that well yeah i mean this is this is the i mean this is the black pill of oh maybe not the black pill of the night but let's just be honest if we ever have to they would basically use a draft and that would really I mean, if they institute a draft that that, that is that the would end of really the start some civil unrest i think that's the end of the regime if they do that especially to fight in ukraine that that would you know I mean, there, Ukraine, there's not a Ukraine or Taiwan. I mean, both would. Uh, Ukraine, Iran more. again. They want to start more than they want to start three wars, and they don't have the combat troops to to fight the wars. Maybe that the the idea is that they're you know fighting. They want to fight these wars to get that, but you, well, know, you don't this have isn't nine eleven to fight one war, let alone all three. This isn't like a nine eleven type of event that drives up recruitment. Well, there's no 9-11 type of event that could do that at this point. Yeah, I think that's very possible. I mean, if COVID didn't unite us, I mean, people thought it would, which was a little bit naive. But I don't think we're going to see 9-11 types of unity in this country again, especially in light of how the 9-11 you know, level of unity that happened in this country led to the passage of the Patriot Act. And a lot of yeah, other yeah, George, bad policy. George Bush, we got to protect our freedoms. They hate us because we're of our freedoms as he signs the Patriot Act like weeks later. Right. And then we invade Afghanistan. 
even though Bin Laden was in Pakistan. Well, and, somehow, and that they were Saudis, somehow, and then somehow planned an attack using like you know primitive telecommunications technology. Somehow, so you know, but that means we have to go to war with Iran, right? I don't know if you've seen that that Family Guy clip where he's like, you know, getting explained to like a five year old what nine eleven was. No, yeah, it's like who did it? It's like so we have to invade Iran. Like at, at the end of like being told what happened on 9-11. So he's like just completely following in line with the narrative. You know, the one thing about Family Guy, I'll just go on this tangent. They're the show that probably benefits the most from micro content. If you're just doing micro clips of the show, it, it's probably the show that benefits the most from that. Yeah, I mean, they have good clips. Yeah, I mean, the episodes aren't very good. But, you know, if you just take one clip of uh, of a bit, you know, they actually do rather well uh for most and black bear talks about the uh oh wait it was this one i wanted uh every male in taiwan has re- received certain amount of military training and that is also kind of like something that is of concern people have floated this idea that hey if you serve in the united states military you can get citizenship which is a bad idea first of all and people don't realize why that's a bad idea first of all did not work out for rome at all and isn't there some sort of... You've read The Prince by Machiavelli, right? Yeah, I've read parts of it. Isn't there, like, the idea that you don't want to have a mercenary army? I mean, if, if there is, I didn't read that part. Okay. Isn't that kind of his thing, that you don't want to fight a war with a mercenary army? You want to fight a war with people that have some sort of heart or skin in the game? Because if they're just, you know, if they're just doing it for the money, they're just going to turn cloak or... You know, they're not going to die for you. They're not going to die for the money. They're going to live to fight another day. So that's one reason why you don't want a mercenary army. But the other reason is you don't want to be defended by foreigners. That's just not a good look. They didn't work out for Rome. It hasn't really worked out anywhere it's been tried other than the French Foreign Legion. But, you know, that's just where we make a lot of jokes about France. So it's not a good idea to do that and in the event that the united states military is turned against its people it's going to be red dawn and you're going to have the you know the nicaraguan soldiers just they're going to be brutal with american uh i guess american flag with an american yeah with an american patch and it's like they're going to be brutal on our people so you want to prevent a situation like that but I, i see what's going on in Texas is basically a way that that could actually end up happening. And I think it's, you know, alarm bells should be going off. Yeah. But this is also goes back to the 2024 election. The regime might be trying to stabilize things just enough. So people be like, yeah, okay, things are coming down. I can vote Biden in 2024 because if they let, if they let the immigration ratchet continue, I think, Again, that does that is like the campaign that campaigns for Trump, or at least campaigns. So you're basically saying Biden. that this is like a local election or a city election where they increase the police presence in order to lower crime so people vote for the incumbents. Yes. That's basically the argument that you're saying. That's which... not the only thing they might do. They might do a sugar rush to the economy. 
They might try to lower interest rates. That that is something I've heard that they're going to start doing that in Q2. There's a lot of different little nuggets that they could just, you know, plug and play with to essentially polish the turd. But is that going to work on this issue? Because this is a a confrontation between the federal government and Joe Biden and the state governments and Greg Abbott, who's kind of the tip of the spear on this. If he loses that confrontation, if he loses that confrontation, he looks weak. And that does not help his election chances. I mean, yes, because winning is what helps your election chances. Being a winner you know, is what helps you out. Being a loser, losing to the states like that is not going to help them out. It's going to make them look bad. I mean, there's a, there, but on the flip side, I mean, part of the reason Obama did well in 2012 is because the Republicans were governors and they basically were able to, you know, stimulate a lot of economic growth in certain states, particularly like Michigan, you know, which went for Trump in 16. So they're able to stabilize those states economically and improve the economy in those states so Obama can walk in and take credit. Yeah, I I do think that... And there's not going to be a... Or we shouldn't expect... There there was sort of a success paradox. Yeah, there there probably won't be presidential debates. So it's not like this will be brought up in a Trump-Biden showdown. Well, we also have the Robert Kennedy Jr. thing going on as well. Now, I don't know how significant of a role he's going to be. I think the Democrats are a hive mind at the end of the day. They're not going to break. They're not going to defect Joe Biden. So I don't think that's happening at all. I think independents might. And I think uh, some Republicans might. It's a pretty dumb idea to do that because you can feel good about agreeing with him on the vaccines, but you disagree with him on everything else. The border is one of them. Gun control. Uh, life. He's, you know, pro-abortion. He would not appoint good Supreme Court justices. And I think he was asked about this. And he picked Earl Warren, one of the worst Supreme Court justices in American history, as someone who he thought did a good job. So, no, you don't want RFK as president. He'd make a terrible president. Yeah, he'd be a good, you know, a cabinet official, a agency head. Like let him let him control the FDA. You'd rather him be a Democrat president, but then you know what we've had. But you do not want him to be a you know a president. Yeah, you want he's he's good on certain issues, bad on others, and he he'd make a good cat. That's why he'd make a good again. He's good on one issue. Yeah, or a couple, but yeah, very related related issues. But if you're talking comprehensive policy, no, he's terrible. So and he loves his uncle, who you know was a key figure in the civil rights regime and stopping the Tuskegee Tuskegee experiments that he mentions like three times in his book. Three times, and probably more, but yeah, he does very hard to pander to black people who probably would not buy what he's selling. Well, again, the thing about a book that big is you got to read it first. It's kind of like how many people don't read Stephen Wolf's book because of how long it is. So, uh, is good, uh, so. 
with that said, so we've kind of talked about the angle of uh, the election, because I don't think this helps Biden at all in reelect. If Biden took the initiative to do, you know, the idea of, you know, we're going to make the trains run on time just for this because it's an election year. Like uh, when Gavin, was it Gavin Newsom or the mayor of uh, San Francisco that cleaned up the city because China Xi Jinping was coming to town? And they cleaned up California city of San Francisco, right? Yeah. It's like they can be competent. They choose not to be because they hate you. I think that they're not afraid of Biden losing. So those are just some of my thoughts. I don't think they're, they don't play for one election. They're not boomers. I mean, they, they are boomers. Uh, Joe Biden's actually a little older than a boomer. But the boomer con can only think of the next election. The Democrats, they're not just about the next election. When, you know, Barack Obama lost election after election, other than the two, you know, 2008 and 2012, they lost every other midterm and then also led to the Democrats losing in 2016. He didn't moderate at all because they're not playing for the elections. They're playing to terraform our society into something unrecognizable. And I think Joe Biden would rather the border keep flowing open than to shut it down to win an election. No. They show that the border can be shut down, then Republicans will just shut it down. And Greg Abbott right now is showing that the border can be shut down, at least in a a strategically important location. So... I, I don't think they want to shut the border down at all to make the trains run on time. That's my read on the situation. Yeah, I mean, again, I I think, I, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I'm not sure what they'll do because it's, again, it's the early stages. You're dealing with Greg Abbott, so we don't actually know. So we're dealing with two incompetent sides. And the only thing that, and the, a lot of the stuff that's giving you confidence in Greg Abbott is simply Ken Paxton and the coalition of states. So those two things are what's really uh, what's really driving it home. The problem is, let's say Greg Abbott wants to escalate beyond just the razor wire. He wants to expand his operation. He wants to maybe throw the buoys back into the water, throw the alligators or whatever, and really just militarize the border. That's where I think Biden might really step down or clamp down. So it could could be like the more you the more you push, the more they'll actually react. Or maybe they'll give them give you the one little zone on like I guess federal lands or whatever at Eagle Pass, but or they'll just divert the immigrants somewhere else. So speaking of uh, RFK Jr., apparently RFK Jr. has backed Texas. So that that's one update, and Donald Trump finally spoke up on the issue earlier today as well. Yeah, he. Yeah, I was, you know, his absence was getting pretty uh, palpable there, you know, for a minute there, you know, we were starting to know. I mean, yes, people were starting to people were starting to murmur about his absence. I mean, his absence in social media is actually it's generally a positive thing, one might say. So this is so I'm going to pull up the map of the states. So we got 25 states and. Yeah, it's a nice little continuity. We got some strategic high ground, like the a lot of the Rocky Mountains. We got the Ozarks. 
Appalachians. Uh, and then we got the, uh, we got some, uh, swamp land like the Everglades and Louisiana Bayou. So this is pretty defensible territory, right? Yeah. Can even make gains and others. A lot of gains to be made. You know, you just invade from West Virginia into Maryland and Pennsylvania and take Pittsburgh. And if we just want to game theory this out, I mean, obviously this is much more going to be about, uh, local uh, governors with their national guard. And if it does amount to a civil war, you know, they'd be deputizing militias and stuff like that. I don't think it works out very well for the feds. This is my read. I don't think they, I think people would defect. And then well, what if one of the reasons the regime is very slow to react to Abbott is simply because they're, you know, they, they would, the morale on the ground with the border control, like they actually, their, their bureaucracy is slow rolling the administration. So you kind of got that border patrol and DHS. Yes. Like the idea that, you know, they're, they're the ones kind of slow rolling their directives from Mayorkas. So I think, there is a certain bureaucratic enforcement that's maybe resisting the regime. And that's all, and basically the same thing that the FBI was doing against Trump, except, you know, in this case, that are actually the border controls actually doing it against Biden. Yeah. I mean, I think that's possible, but I don't think the, I, again, I think the border tr- patrol is very handicapped and handcuffed. They're not, I don't know how much of a sway they really have on this situation or in any situation. I do think, you know, people like Charles Haywood talk about this a lot. They are a lot more fragile than they're, than they appear because they aren't as competent as they're not capable of governing a nation because they reject reality itself. And even, you know, this is why, you know, let's just take Muslims for an example. They were pretty competent at governing, were they not? You know, their empires. Uh, you got to give the Ottomans credit, as treacherous as they were. They didn't, you know, honor marriage pacts or anything like that. But they lasted 700 years. So a lot of, you know, pagan worldview systems, they don't reject reality other than, you know, the first table. They, they don't or they reject a lot of the first table stuff, but they don't reject the second table as much. So they're more competent at governing. This liberalism hates mankind. It's anti-human. It's anti-natalist. It doesn't want people to reproduce. You can't have a civilization where people have it with a negative birth rate. That's a death sentence on a civilization. So people aren't reproducing. They're killing their children. They're, you know, embracing sexual degeneracy, which doesn't actually help out with the population. So liberalism is a cancer to society. It doesn't help society at all. And even, you know, backward systems like Islam can still, you know, outlast them. And that's, you know, what they're going to do in Europe, probably. And I that's why the. Islam, Muslims, and Democrats don't have problems forming a political alliance. Well, and again, with this map, I mean, there's a lot of states there. There's a lot of attorney generals in those those states. What if they were actually investigating 
opening investigations against organizations, the NGOs that are actually helping these people cross. And again, the George Soros type NGOs, a lot of that dark money, that's what's facilitating a lot of these migrants. Like they're not coming up with nothing. They're actually being well-funded. I mean, the thing is, we needed four, one of these four states to say, hey, there's an invasion. And Texas was that state. So we, we just got to keep that in perspective. Like one of those states had to say, hey, we're being invaded. And invoke the invasion clause. So with that said, Texas started something. And I think on the constitutional argument, they're going to see it through. And these people hate this country so much that they'd rather let it be invaded. Than, and they would rather fight Texas. And it just goes to show what exactly um, their priorities are. They're not about governing capably. Uh, Formosan Black Bear says, USSR lasted longer than the Nazis. It does not mean they were more efficient. And I, th you're right about that. But the USSR also cratered the birth rate. You know, they, they weren't very good for civilization either because they oh. were basically Russian. Russia was occupied by, you know, a certain foreign group of people. And they weren't they didn't have what was best in the interest of the people at all. Well, it, it, I mean, they might have actually been more efficient because they, Russia was in, essentially industrialized by America. So, I mean, we essentially gave them nukes. We gave them. Uh, Not that they stole the nuclear information. Well, yeah, they did that, too. Um, Isn't that what the whole Oppenheimer thing is about? <laughs> I don't um, think his name was Oppenheimer. But uh, they, they, I mean, we helped them build locomotives and like we, we essentially gave the Soviets their, a lot of their industrial capacity. Right. Because so therefore they might have actually been more efficient than Nazis on that, on that count alone. Yeah. Initially the Stalingrad was more of their industrial center, but then they moved their industry deeper into their territory. Uh, but they did last longer. Uh, yeah, Germans are known for their efficiency, so you're right about that. But they lasted longer because they won the war. They were on the winning side of the war. And I don't know what the kill-death ratio was on the uh, Eastern Front, but yeah, the Soviets lost the most people in the war. Because even German strategic retreats, you know, they're still very costly. So Russia's gaining a lot of ground. The Soviets gained a lot of ground, but they suffered dearly for that. So, and that's why we had to firebomb Dresden. Uh, so, this this map, if you want to split it up between the red states and the uh, the the nationalist and the communist, is basically what this map is shaping up to be. Because that's basically what the Democrats are. They're the latest iteration of a communist party. And the Republican Party isn't a nationalist party yet, but that's what they're going to be. No, it's, it's almost what they refuse to be. Again, it goes back yeah, to... They refuse, yeah, you're right. They refuse to be it, but it's inevitable. Because people like Nikki Haley, who are anti-nationalists, who hate this country, they're a dying breed. 
Ronna McDaniel just called on her to drop out. Now, Ronna McDaniel's the establishment, right? Head of the RNC. That's establishment as it gets. Oh, yeah, but, you know, she's basically... Nikki Haley's not the establishment. She just represents yesterday's Republican. And, you know, maybe 20% of the Republican Party hates the Republican Party, and that's who votes for her. That's who Nikki Haley represents. But she's a dying breed, a relic, and someone who's just, you know, not going to last much longer in this party. But she's not the establishment, really. But one day, and I think it will happen, the question is, do we have enough time to see it happen? The Republican Party will become a more nationalistic party. It just needs to happen. And people are waking up. People are noticing. So that's my thoughts. And you're building a nice coalition states of America to get that done. So uh, any more thoughts on Texas? Actually, we should touch on the lesser magistrates. I want to touch on that. So we've talked a lot about, you know, civil war, how that would play out. But the way for a civil war to really be conducted biblically is for a lesser magistrates to rise up against the central authority. We do not, you know, it, peasant revolts are really rather unbiblical. The idea of the masses and the rabble rising up against their liege, not a very biblical concept. We do see some exceptions to this in scripture with the story of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And how when he became king, he was a tyrant immediately. I would argue that the wasn't Bible the, does not condemn the people for rising up against. But him. I would I would argue that wasn't the that wasn't the rabble that was the elders. So therefore, it was still a doctrine of lesser magistrate. Right. So I'm just trying to think of like a situation, and I'm you know steelmanning the argument against the point that I'm making. I mean the rabble that the rabble were justified in their rebellion against Rehoboam in Scripture. The, Rabble crucified. God offers. There's some. God offers Jeroboam a covenant, and he rejects it. So they were justified, and they even were offered a covenant. The elders in Rehoboam's time were boomers. I don't think that's the case, because we got to think that this is a unique generation in American history, one that grew up in the most materially successful yet at the same time, most moral civilization, and then just saw that eroded over two decades. So it's a very unique generation. And I don't think the boomers are the worst generation in American history. I do think they're the most myopic generation in American history. I think that's pretty undeniable. But they're not the worst. The worst generation in American history is the generation that was in power in the... uh, you know, that passed the Federal Reserve Act, the 16th, 17th, and 18th, 19th Amendments in the United States Constitution. So the progressive era power brokers were the worst generation in American history. That That's the worst generation. They did damage that was unrevocable, irrevocable. But the boomers are the most myopic. They're not thinking about the future. Yeah, I mean, that, I'm, uh, uh, I will have to write about this one day. 
because uh, again, Christopher Codwell. Again, reading the book is fascinating because it is a huge history lesson on boomers. So that's that's one thing that's been very interesting to read, and it just takes you to each the chapters kind of take you through different eras since the '60s. So it's kind of fascinating and how it breaks it down and all the things it actually says about boomers and. Yeah, it's a real black pill, red pill, you know, truth pill, all at the same time. I have some hope for Gen X, but, you know, they actually got to step up a little bit. But usually when they step up, you know, who votes in elections? Yeah, and then... Not Gen X. Someone's ready as much. for the... Actually, they, they vote more than Millennials and Zoomers, so they got us there. And someone's voting for the eye candy Republicans. <laughs> it's probably us. <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, we got a lot of uh, work to do on our side. And this is something that I said, and this applies to the the Greg Abbott situation. We win by governing. You know, we don't win by owning the libs. We win by governing. That's how we win. And too few people know this and too few people. And these are people on our side that don't know this. These are people that are liking my social media post that don't know this. They think they know this, but they really don't. So we win by governing. And that's how you move the needle. That's the goal is to govern. The goal is not to own the left. The goal is not to expose the evil. You know, this is, you know, discernment ministry, right? So we do a lot of exposing of evil, but that's not the ultimate goal. You know, there's a goal beyond that. That's or that's the means, but that's not the end all. You know, you take the Alistair Begg story. You know, we we exposed him, but and you know, the goal would have been that he repent of his position. That hasn't happened yet. But that's not, you know, the goal wasn't to just write an article and you know be done with the situation. We are actively involved in the stories that we're reporting like when i report on the southern baptist convention there's an end of trying to help the southern baptist convention even though i'm not southern baptist i seem to have a much more vested interest in their success than most southern baptists do and it's not even uh close to be fair so there's a goal in this but the ultimate goal you know but we win by governing not by exposing not by owning the libs not by mean tweets or memes we win by governing I mean, this also, I mean, I don't know if you followed the whole creating the right creating culture debate that's been in all those discussions surrounding, you know, the right, why the right can't create culture. You know, again, I liked what John. Yes, I have been following. Yeah, I I watched John Doyle. I like what he talked about, how it's just like the right thinks, you know, being smug is winning. And that's, you know, we're just. That's Jeremy boring to a T. Yes. Smug, arrogant, cocky, you know thinking owning the libs is actually doing something now how much do you think that that fits doug wilson uh probably not as much i mean Uh he has more of a grandfatherly demeanor maybe and also like a storyteller which again is it's fun to hear him speak but it's not always the most when he writes it's not very yeah i I read his writing in his voice i mean i do that with a lot of people but yeah, it's, it's a fun voice. I mean, with Wilson specifically, his greatest strength is also his greatest weakness. You know, very, very long-winded and little word salad But if you were hearing him talk, it's very entertaining. And 
Yeah, it is great delivery. I, I, I was just wondering with a lot of the stuff that they do in Moscow, I, you know, how much of that, how much of their creative culture falls into that trap. So it, it's a question worth asking because, again, the end all isn't to just expose the left or, you know, and, and I, I've talked about this in the upcoming book is that, you know, Christianity is not a value proposition for a business, you know, and certainly not for a movie or a culture. So you can't just slap a Christian label on it and expect people to want to do business with it. So with that said, I do want to kind of pivot over to a related story. This was something I covered on Evangelical Dark Web on Wednesday uh, or Tuesday, actually. And it's a story that came out of Megan Basham who usually writes for the Daily Wire, but this was for First Things. And it was David French, Russell Moore, Curtis Chang's Bible curriculum is uh, was funded by liberal dark money. So this happened a while ago where they formed a thing called the After Party, which is part of uh, Curtis Chang's uh, ministry, the After Party. This is what it is. It's like towards better Christian politics. And all of a sudden you're seeing a lot of liberals, liberal evangelical inf infiltrators talk about how much we need to be political. Michael Ware is doing that. We have the, um, uh, there's an Alberta's book, uh, Tim Alberta's book that has been very influential in trying to do that. So there's a lot of liberal evangelicals saying how much, the uh, Christian needs to be involved in politics. And it's basically just a psyop to say, hey, you need to be liberals too. It's, you know, because if you're not, you're like this Christian nationalist. And by the way, Christian nationalism is the proper biblical position and application of Christianity in the uh, civil arena, by the way. But Megan Basham wrote this article at First Things Magazine. And here's just an excerpt from her findings. Alberta's book offers no details about the funding of the project, which is the after party, but a bit of internet sleuthing revealed that in May, 2022, the Rockefeller philanthropy advisors announced that the after party would be one of the 32 beneficiaries of the, their new pluralist project, which is investing $10 million to address divisive forces. If the money was divided evenly, it would cover it would more than cover the entire 250,000 budget of Chang's umbrella organization Redeeming Babel, which is behind the after party. So basically these the Rockefellers and that's old money, they want to advance pluralism and pluralism is just a fancy way of saying polytheism. Right. Or universalism. Civic or civil polytheism. And now, well, universalism is how you mesh the uh, polytheist together. So while Chang and company claim that their project isn't focused on parties or policies, the Rockefeller announcement noted that it would launch in the battleground of Ohio though none of the after party's founders called that state home. 
Rockefeller's interest in bankrolling Bible studies is a red flag. In the same grant round as the after party is a group that seeks to promote leadership of rural homosexual and transvestite people. Another is committed to keeping the remaining fossil fuel resources in the ground in the name of climate justice. In 2019, the after party's benefactor gave $100 million to a collective to the collaborative for gender and reproductive equity in an initiative that funds efforts to safeguard abortion and ensures that youth have access to gender affirming care. A full accounting of all of Rockefeller's grantees committed to furthering hard left causes would require a book long enough to rival Alberta's. So again, that's the, uh, Tim Alberta has been like highly uh, touted by the liberals as a, an authoritative figure on the church in the same way that Christian Dumez is <clears throat> or Russell Moore. Rockefeller isn't the only progressive purse with strings attached to the after party. The project's website lists one, lists one America movement and the ecumenical group as one of its partners, the group's board includes a leader of a gay affirming synagogue, no shock there, as well as a co-founder of a Black Lives Matter of Greater New York who excuses rioting as self-defense and calls G and called Jesus a black radical revolutionary. One America has revealed over two million dollars from some of the most powerful foundations on the left, such as the Tides Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, the Walton Family's Cantina Foundation, and the John Pritzker's Family Fund, all of which fund enterprises promoting abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism, and other left-wing priorities. The Hewlett Foundation, which also directly funds the after party, is the second largest private donor to Planned Parenthood. So that's HP for, and Walton family would presumably be Walmart for those that are familiar with all the different billionaire names. Now we did the, then we did the live stream like several weeks back, probably last year that had to do with other dark money infiltrating the church. I, that was it. I can't remember. There's been a, a few of those. You, you did something on dark money. Uh, we've talked about yeah. the less dark. He gets us. Campaign. He gets us. I wouldn't necessarily call that dark money. That's just stupid money. The uh, the Green family is just stupid rich, and they don't know how to use that money at all. And there's that. The Chosen, I think, is very much a Venn diagram with the He Gets His campaign, by the way. So they... They have money on the bad guys side. Yeah, but and a lot. And a that lot is of why people, people like David French are still around. That's why people like Russell Moore are still around, and Curtis Chang. Oh, uh, it was neighborly. They faith. have money. Neighborly faith, and that right. was the guy that founded eBay, I think, uh, the Democracy Fund with uh, Pierre Omidyar. Right. I, yeah. I, I I reported something on that. Right? Yes. Or, yeah, we did the okay. live stream on that on that particular subject. And 
So, I mean, the idea that dark money is infiltrating the church, is not even a new phenomenon. That's pretty much a lot of the premise of enemies within the churches, which is what I immediately thought of with this whole, with this. This article is very much a follow the money. Uh, you know, if you, you know, look into the history, I mean, the Scofield Bible, you know. Who funded that? Yeah, who funded that? So I'm going to issue a last call because I didn't want to go on too much longer. So last call for questions. Uh, I do want to address a comment. Uh, Lady Ballers was a bad movie. It did not look good. And the reason why I didn't think it looked good is because it did not have the acting prowess necessary to make it a good movie. That was my opinion from afar. Uh, it seems that some people thought that. I, I haven't seen a good review of it. And by good, I mean a quality review. But I, I do think it's interesting and while we're on the subject of pop culture, I just want to say, I, I feel like things like South Park kind of dumbed down the millennial generation on this issue. Because 2006, they had the episode Mr. Garrison's Fancy New Vagina or whatever it's called, which made fun of the transgender issue entirely. It, it basically equated it to Kyle's dad wanting to become a dolphin. So... That was the more that was how they equated it, and then in sometime in like 2015, they basically say, Do you should be able to use whatever bathroom you want? So, South Park like regressed on their commentary on this. Oh, issue, they did the same and thing, and millennials did the same thing, they, and millennials went with them on that. And they did the same thing with the you know, put a chick in it, and make her make her gay or whatever. Which is also with like the, the dumbed down, which is a dumber critique than what was previously available. Yeah, I mean, they called Steven Spielberg and George Lucas child rapist for, for uh, King of the Christmas. Again, yeah, Crystal, yeah, Crystal Skull. Skull. They they went there, and then it's just like, oh, you know, she's sympathetic. It's all the fans that made her bad. It's just, yeah, they're they're not as South Park just is not what it used to be. And millennials don't realize that. So, uh, okay. Seeing as we don't have any questions, but I'll, lady I'll just... Ball ballers was the definition of smug, arrogant, Jeremy boring, just to get yeah. back to that. Um, yes. Culture. So, so with that said, uh, I do want to say, if you like evangelical dark web, don't forget to like and subscribe, especially if you're new or you're listening and, you can support our work over at evangelodarkweb.org slash join. We do have an upcoming book that will be titled Winning Not Winsome, Ten Commandments of Spiritual Warfare. New material, uh, underlying material, undergirding this ministry. But what's interesting is how much winsomeness is coming up in public discourse again. Like when I started the project, it was you know very much a buzzword of Big Eva. Now it's being used a lot because of the whole Alistair Begg thing. And you've seen a lot of critique of winsomeness. So we're coming out at a good time right now. So you definitely want to stay tuned for that book when it comes out. But until then, we will catch you on the next one.